Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. With the British Army coursing through the southern colonies, Patriot movement was sent reeling. After a disastrous American defeat at Camden, new British commander Charles Cornwallis tangled with the American general Nathaniel Greene in the backcountry of the Carolinas. Ultimately, Lord Cornwallis defied the orders of his superior officer and invaded the colony of Virginia, a maneuver that would seal his fate and the fate of a nation forever. On this episode, we discuss the year 1781, I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 3 of the series, we're discussing the American Revolutionary Era, the people, places, and ideas that defined it, and the political ideologies that gave rise to the world's first truly modern republic. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, or by searching Wartime Podcast. You can visit my author's website for news, appearances, and events, bradykreitzer.com, and of course your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. Before we jump headlong into uh, today's episode, I'd like to make a quick announcement about the end of Season 3. As you know, we always have, since we've done, you know, three of these seasons, uh, a a season-ending wrap-up, where I read some of your emails, answer your questions, read your comments, and if they are appropriate, of course, read your critiques. Any one of them are welcome. As always, if I do read your comments on the air, and you can email me at bradykreitzer.com, there's a contact link, or at wartimepodcast.com. You can have your free choice of any one of my books. There's Major Washington's Pittsburgh and the Mission to Fort LeBeouf, the only book that details George Washington's very first mission in the year 1753 in its entirety. There's Fort Pitt, a frontier history, a very brief biographic sketch of what was British North America's most expensive fortification and the base of the American Revolution of the West. You can ask for, in hardback, Gaia Sutta and the Fall of Indian America, a biography of a warrior Indian chief and diplomat who participated in every major war in America's colonial period from 1753 to the year 1800. And for the email I choose to be the, I guess you can say, email of the season, you'll receive an advanced copy of my new book coming out in this May, entitled Hessians, Mercenaries, Rebels, and the War for British North America. Now, when I say advanced copy, keep in mind, uh, really the only people that will have a copy of that book at that time are you and I. Uh, so, enjoy it, if you would. But today, in, uh, as we move forward, uh, we're going to talk about what, in the eyes of many, is generally assumed to be the end of the American Revolution, the year 1781. Of course, here in wartime, we always dig deeper. But 1781 is a very big year for the American Revolution. 
Uh, it does bring some finality in a way because combat operations mostly ceased. Again, we said mostly, we'll talk about it as we move forward. But I think 1781 for me is a really big year in the revolution. In many ways, yes, again, because most of the fighting ceases, we tend to leave the revolution behind after this year. But there's really so much more to it. Not just to the year, not just to the battles, not just to where and why they're fought, but really to the totality of the war. I mean, there's something very impressive about this year. It's one of the rare times we'll see, for example, George Washington actually win a battle. It's one of the rare times we'll see the British military command really start to buckle under the pressure of a well-executed, well-timed American patriot attack. And it's also one of the years that really lets us get a much bigger sense, I think, of what exactly the British are trying to do in North America and why, quite frankly, they are failing miserably at it. So as always, we're going to begin this episode uh, with a little bit of review, just to set up what we're dealing with today and maybe hit some of the high notes from the previous episode. If you listen to the previous episode of Wartime, you'll know very well what's going down in the American colonies. Once again, the British Empire has drastically changed their strategy for ending this war quickly and painlessly. And instead, they've made it a very long war that was very painful. But their new theater of operation, we can say, is the American South. They believe that there are many latent, loyalist sentiments in the South. And again, they think they have the evidence to back it up. Georgia didn't even send a delegate to the First Continental Congress. And of course, once they arrive there, they find out very quickly things aren't exactly what they seem. There is some loyalism in the American South, but there is also a pronounced patriot force in the American South. And as most people would experience in a time of war caught in the middle, they tend to support whatever army is on their front lawn. Boy, I've said that a lot this season. I hope you remember it. I think it's very important. In the year 1780, we saw some major events transpire, most notably the single greatest British victory of the entire war so far. The capture of Charleston, thousands of American patriots, will be taken prisoner as a result of that maneuver. And we've seen that with the capture of Charleston and the capture of Savannah, Georgia, the British have given themselves a strong toehold in the American South. That gives them a few important toeholds, one in Canada, Quebec, of course, and the other, their real base of operations, New York. Now you have two more in the South. Boston's really the only biggest harbor that isn't controlled by the British at this point. It was, and they left, of course, years earlier. But 1780 was a very trying year for both sides. Again, America suffers its worst defeat in Charleston, South Carolina. And the British find out very quickly the support that they thought they had wasn't really there. You know, one of the battles we talked about last week, one of my favorite battles for that matter, was the Battle of Kings Mountain. It was a fairly large engagement, about 3,000 men, British versus American. And of course, what really stands out about that American victory was the fact that there really wasn't but one British soldier on the field. I mean, it was really loyal Americans versus rebel Americans. And that was where we left 1780. But I think it's worth mentioning in a very big way that we may have left it a little prematurely. I didn't want to start into it last week in the previous episode, because I think it's a very big topic we'll explore today. 
but it's something that we really do need to discuss now before we can really fully appreciate 1781. In the year 1780, the British will see a new commander take over in the American South, named Charles Cornwallis. Lord Cornwallis, for that matter. Cornwallis is an aging man. Cornwallis is a die-hard empire man. He believes in the British Empire. He serves the British Empire. The British Empire is responsible for his very high quality of life. It's good to be a lord in the 18th century. Heck, it's probably good to be a lord now in the 21st as well. And Charles Cornwallis arrives in the American South with the express goal, and he's sent there by Sir Henry Clinton, still commanding in New York. Find loyal support, gin it up, take whatever you can. Cornwallis believes the best way to take the South apart is piecemeal. Again, Georgia's the beginning in the very far South. Then he'll move north into South Carolina, and presumably move north into North Carolina, that would be a big score, and then ultimately find himself in Virginia. By doing that, piece by piece by piece, he believes that you could build a large groundswell of loyal support, sweep into Pennsylvania, Maryland, and of course New York and the New England colonies, and end this whole thing. Sort of interesting that in many ways, a hundred years later, in the American Civil War, William Tecumseh Sherman will do the exact same thing, only he'll be successful. But we already talked about one of the moments that really tripped up this whole plan, and really kept Cornwallis in South Carolina in 1780, and it was that Battle of King's Mountain. If King's Mountain had been successful, Cornwallis no doubt would have moved into North Carolina, and the battlefield itself almost straddles the two states today. But he doesn't. It's a loss. It's discouraging, more because he doesn't really find the loyal support he'd have than the fact that he lost a relatively small skirmish. But he does have to winter in South Carolina in 1780. Now, it's not really that bad for him as far as wrapping up the year. In 1780, the American Continental Congress and General George Washington put a commanding officer in the American South to counteract the new British threat. His name was Horatio Gates. You might remember that name, Horatio Gates. In the year 1777, he was the hero of Saratoga. And if the hero of Saratoga, who showed down with John Burgoyne and defeated him in two separate battles, could find victory there under those circumstances, well, why not find victory down south as well? Now, these two armies will meet at a battle we call the Battle of Camden. At the tail end of 1780, this actually happens before King's Mountain, but it really didn't fit with the discussion last week, so we'll do it now. And to make it very quick and very easy, Horatio Gates, the great hero that we already talked about for the Americans, is terribly defeated. I mean, after Charleston was taken, really any military resistance in the American South by the American Continental Army really fell apart. But in 1780, with the defeat at Camden, Horatio Gates is relieved of command, and things are looking grim. I mean, think about it. We're in 1781. This is the year that we've all been told is the end of the revolution, and it's an end that favors the Americans, yet we're seeing one of the darkest chapters and the darkest periods so far. Again, I hate to say that anything is inevitable, and when we study the revolution, I think we fall into that too much. Well, we know who's going to win, so we discredit the events as they happened. We undermine them, we make them simple and easy, and we leave out the things that challenge our understanding. But here, 1781. That final year, things are looking uh, pretty low, pretty low for the Americans at this point. 
Well, this gets us to, again, early 1781, and it gets us to the first real big change of the war in the South. And it comes from, of all people, General George Washington. The American Continental Congress was always, I would say, fairly involved, maybe in some cases over-involved, in the day-to-day operations of the military in the field during the American Revolution. Not always, but you can make an argument that in some circumstances, perhaps they had too much power and too much authority. And they knew the importance of the American South. Understanding that they just sent Horatio Gates down south, losing in South Carolina at Camden only a few months earlier, they now understand that whoever does take command of the American South really needs to be uh, greatly uh, supported uh, and involved with General George Washington. So much so that the Continental Congress basically tells the general, you pick the commander. You pick the commander. And we'll support your decision. We trust your judgment. I mean, that's really something that doesn't happen too often in any war. The civilian government, quote-unquote, trusting the judgment of the military commander in the field. And George Washington, almost without without a doubt in mind, selects one of his right-hand men to do the job. The man he picks is a man we really haven't talked about yet, but we did talk about the events he was involved in. He's been at Washington's side for most of the war, including his major victories, again, if you could call them that, at Trenton and Princeton in New Jersey. His name is Nathaniel Green, and Nathaniel Green will leave Washington's side, venture down south with a very meager force, and do his best to fight the mighty British army. Now, remember I said when Charleston fell, a lot of the organized Patriot Army in the South fell too. I mean, they were mostly in Charleston. But I don't want to lull you into believing that things are peaceful in the South. Because there is a lot of fighting in the South going on in the meantime. But it's not being done by regular soldiers. It's not being done by men in matching uniforms. It's being done by what we call partisans. And that's a big word for the American Revolution. And in my opinion, it's one we don't use enough. Partisan warfare is horrible warfare. Sneak attacks, ambushes, uh, raiding parties. These are the kind of things you see in partisan warfare. And in the South, the British are being really thrown into fits by very notable partisan leaders. Men like the Swamp Fox, Francis Marion, and the Gamecock, Andrew Pickens. I mean, these are all names that still reverberate throughout American history. These are the people doing most of the fighting in the South during the lull between the major battles. And they are fairly effective. I mean, when you consider they're basically sort of, I guess, pirates without ships, land pirates, if you would. Um, That's how the British would view them. Some even, even describe them that way. They are an effective mechanism. Now, how much they're in communication with, say, George Washington is virtually none. But there's an understanding there. You know, these are troops marching through your home. You value personal freedom. Uh, Again, you you despise authority in most cases. And who's to say they even uh, necessarily wouldn't despise American authority? Really, it's all authority, especially British authority. And they're keeping the fight alive. But Nathaniel Green, make no mistake, as much as we love to romanticize Pickens and Marion and the like, Nathaniel Green is the real superstar of the first part of this episode. Because he does something that George Washington has tried to do uh, in the North. Weather was always a concern. And he does it virtually unimpeded in the South. 
And what he does is basically drain the British soldiers, drain Charles Cornwallis of his manpower, of his supplies, of his will to fight. How does he do that? Well, remember when we talked about southern colonies? You know, we can look at them on maps and see their very huge expanses of land. But the reality is in the colonial world, most of these colonies are really seeing their population centered around the coast. And the back country, as you call it, is pretty wide open and pretty wild and wooly as well. There aren't many homes in the back country. There are some plantations. What plantations are there, as far as their loyalties, are largely up for grabs. They really could be loyal or patriot, again, depending who's there at the time. And he understands, Nathaniel Green, that Charles Cornwallis is going to use Charleston and use Savannah as a place to resupply his men, as a place to gain reinforcements. Uh, he's really going to feed off of them completely. I mean, it's really sort of, he's almost attached to those cities. Now, for Green, the decision's obvious how you're going to fight the much bigger army. Green writes many times, he will not engage Charles Cornwallis and the British army in a toe-to-toe -to -toe battle. To do so would be disastrous. Again, look at the Battle of Camden. Horatio Gates was viewed as the hero of Saratoga. Yet when you go down south, when you go into that wild and terrible wilderness of the south, and you take on a much bigger British army... It's not really going to work out well for you. So 1781, Green decides, wants to be his year. He has no idea how effective he's going to be. But this is basically his plan. Again, we don't talk a lot about individual battles on wartime. As far as specifics, I'd much rather have you understand why the battles happen and why they're important than what troops move where and when. But here's the basic idea of Green's plan, and he executes it marvelously. He knows Cornwallis needs the cities to keep his army alive. He understands that. He knows that he doesn't really need such a thing. He can feed off the land effectively. And his men are much fewer than, than Charles Cornwallis's men. Green will basically uh, lead Charles Cornwallis and his British army on a wild goose chase through South Carolina and North Carolina. Through the back country, if you would. Cornwallis's army will chase him. Uh, try and track him down. Sometimes they'll engage in small battles. Most of the time the British win. But that really doesn't matter to Nathaniel Green. He's not fighting for a piece of land or to control a hill. He's fighting just to fight. He's fighting to sap the British of their resources. And the further he can get them away from places like Charleston, Savannah, from the coast, the better off he is. Nathaniel Green will go so far with a fairly meager, meager force, by the way to split his army in two, giving command to uh, a man who's been involved in the war seemingly from the beginning in Boston named Daniel Morgan. And therefore, Cornwallis has to split his army in two. And again, they get further and further away from the cities they rely on so much. Now, some of these battles are victories. Some of these battles are losses. You can visit these battlefields today. Believe me when I say, it is not my intention to make these uh, battles seem less important than they really are. It's not my intention to undermine these battles in any way, but I just want to keep them in perspective for you because a lot can happen in a year. But in the South, Charles Cornwallis is starting to realize things aren't going the way he planned. He's winning battles most of the time. By any military standard, that's a good thing. 
But these are what we'd call Pyrrhic victories. These are victories that, yes, even though you're winning, are really doing more harm than good because you're using valuable manpower, valuable supplies. You're weakening yourself and whittling yourself down. Your opponent doesn't seem to be affected much. That's Nathaniel Green's plan. Now, from a strictly military perspective, that's pretty beautiful. I mean, it really is executed flawlessly. But that's not what I love about it. Because you have to remember, wars are really fought for people. I mean, you're protecting and defending someone somewhere. Maybe it's your government. Maybe it's your neighbors. But when we make wars about regiments and the blue block versus the red block moving on a uh, you know, topographic map, you really lose sight of what these are all about, why these people are fighting, who they are. You're stripping away their humanity, and I think losing the biggest part of the battle itself. But what Nathaniel Green really wants to do is allow the British to resupply themselves, not from the cities, though, from the places they're fighting. Remember I told you, all of those plantations in the back country are really up for grabs. They could be loyal. They could be patriot. They're doing quite well financially. Well, Green gives very specific instructions to his men and to Daniel Morgan's men who have broken off and are sort of doing the same thing. Do not raid any farms. Think about that. Do not raid any farms. He says, let the British, let Cornwallis raid the farms. Let them fill their bellies on the, on the hard work of many African slaves and slave owners in the American South. And that's exactly what Cornwallis does. He comes across a plantation... His men strip it bare, and they move on. An army marches on its stomach, we know that. But what do they leave behind, that stripped bare plantation? A lot of angry plantation owners. The British will take slaves with them when they leave. There are many offers in the American South by the British to actually give slaves freedom if they fight. They take them, though, for uh, Cornwallis's sake, as the spoils of war. So I guess what I'm saying is, everywhere the fighting occurs, Cornwallis doesn't just leave victorious. He doesn't just leave behind a few dead Americans. He leaves behind a lot of enemies, too. And that goes directly against his entire reason for being in the South. Now, I don't want to make it seem like Green is just traveling around the South, being defeated time after time. He does find victory at, at uh, the Battle of Calpens. That's an important one. He also fought suffers a pretty crushing loss uh, at the Battle of Guilford Courthouse in North Carolina. But that doesn't really matter to him. Again, his ambition is not to win the battles. Just having Cornwallis fight is victory enough. It seems amazing, but in total there's more than a dozen small and large engagements between Nathaniel Green's Patriot Army and Charles Cornwallis's regular British Army. A dozen. Over 2,000 British soldiers are killed as a result. Green gives us a great quote here. I'm going to read it verbatim. Again, it's not always my thing, but I think in this case you should hear the words. That sums it up perfectly. He says this, We fight, get beat, rise, and fight again. Nathaniel Green. And that really does sort of boil it down. I mean, these are tactics that have been used since the Roman times. Long, slow battles of attrition that favor the smaller army. Remember, Nathaniel Green's force is really split in two. Daniel Morgan has a force, and Green has a force himself. And as, as Cornwallis uh, correctly sees, the best way to proceed is to take out one of these forces, 
presumably at their weakest, before they can rejoin and move on. I mean, this is again like a wild goose chase throughout the same area over and over again. Cornwallis decides he's going to go after Green's army itself. And Green says very joyously, he is ours. For Cornwallis to do that, he has to leave behind many provisions because it's slowing him down. Many of the people who saw Cornwallis' army marching actually compared it to something like uh, a horde on the Silk Road, a Tartar horde, they said. African slaves in tow, donkeys in tow, uh, pack animals of all kinds in tow, people following the camp in tow, a massive large force throughout the South. I mean, just the optics of that are going to virtually guarantee that Charles Cornwallis will not be successful. But time and again, it's what we see. It's the same mistakes by the British. Cornwallis ultimately decides, and all of his men agree, that the reason he can't defeat Green, and he does see that this could go on forever until he runs out of men or supplies, is that Green is being supplied by somewhere outside of the Carolinas. Where could that be? He correctly assumes it's the colony of Virginia. Now, if you're not familiar with the map, if you stack these colonies up south to north, it looks like this. Georgia, northward into South Carolina, northward into North Carolina, and ultimately northward into Virginia. It's Cornwallis' belief that Nathaniel Green is being supplied from Virginia itself. And he says, enough of North Carolina, enough of South Carolina. I'm going to march into Virginia, and I'm going to end this war there. This begins what we call the Race to the Dan. The Dan River separates North Carolina from Virginia. Just for posterity's sake, you should know that. And Green is beside himself with joy. I mean, the fighting's been hard. The fighting's been tough. But he's doing exactly what he wanted to do. And George Washington, way up in New York, can do nothing but watch on and be happy for it. But what's in Virginia waiting for Charles Cornwallis? Well, we know that destiny awaits him, I guess you could say. Uh, but from a more adult view, I guess you could say, from a more realistic view, there's actually a lot waiting for him in Virginia. See, earlier in the year, 1780, uh, Sir Henry Clinton dispatched one of the most reviled figures in all of American history to Virginia to raid, to pillage, to plunder, and to find some strategic locations to build some Navy bases. Uh, of course, I'm talking about Benedict Arnold. Now, Benedict Arnold's an interesting guy. He's, a, in the early part of the war, one of the great heroes of the war. Uh, I mean, he was called the American Hannibal because of the great victories he found. He was instrumental in the victory on the ground at Saratoga. I mean, yeah, Gates was the commander on the hill, but Benedict Arnold was the one really in there slashing at the British with a sword. He was really instrumental in a lot of battles. Uh, breaking down the Saratoga campaign before that as well. I mean, he was just always there. He led the attack on Quebec, if you'll remember. But he was unhappy with what was going on in the in the American ranks. He believed he was being professionally slighted. He believed he wasn't getting credit for the things that he had done. I mean, it's all very petty, and you can find the story, you know, on uh, in, in Wikipedia or something. God forbid I say that. Um, but he's now fully flipped to the British side. And again, looking back, it seems like a horrible decision. You know, looking back from the American perspective, what a terrible traitor. His name is forever tarnished. Uh, but even here in 1781, there is no clear winner in this battle, and there's no clear end in sight. So Benedict Arnold takes the money, uh, flips to the British. He knows Virginia well, and he leads a British 
squadron, so to speak, up the many rivers of Virginia doing damage all along the way. So whenever Charles Cornwallis is marching toward Virginia, he knows there are already British troops present there as well. Now again, the commanding officer of the Patriot Forces, George Washington, is in New York. He sees Benedict Arnold making his way there. And to stop him, to counteract him, and to gain some intelligence, he sends southward an army under the command of a young French officer named the Marquis de Lafayette. The Marquis de Lafayette is one of the major figures of the Revolution, and he's French. He's sort of a young rabble-rouser who believes deeply in the cause of revolution, and he does truly love America, I believe it. He'll come back as an older man. And the Marquis de Lafayette will lead not only American troops, but French troops into Virginia to counteract the destructive raids the British have been doing already. But by the time that Cornwallis marches in in 1781, you're now dealing with the summertime, it becomes a very different place. I think there's a real general sense of uncertainty amongst both sides what's going to happen. Cornwallis is fully convinced he will find victory. I really believe that. And even towards the end, he still won't give it up. Because every time he fights these American forces, he wins. He's got superior numbers. He has a mission in mind. He really believes logistically victory can be found. And the Americans, whether it be Green or the Marquis de Lafayette, uh, can only really get out of his way, but hopefully lure him into a trap. Now, you know, that trap, to be very honest, will never come. Not the way that Green and Washington and, and the Marquis de Lafayette really hope. But I think, again, it's a very revealing time to be very frank about where these two armies stand. You have the British Army, I think really truly putting ego uh, ahead of uh, duty, perhaps. Uh, at least they greatly overestimate their odds against their uh, French and American enemies. And you have the, the American Patriot Army, who are really looking at the possibility uh, of a very sort of game-changing event about to take place that's completely out of their hands uh, in, a lot of, in a lot of ways, which we'll talk about. And it leads to a very interesting standoff. Now, let's talk about the British Army a little bit. Remember who's in command of the entire British force in North America. It's still Sir Henry Clinton, and Clinton is in New York. Cornwallis, though, is basically running the show on the ground, at least it feels like it. Clinton tells Cornwallis, do not march into Virginia. Not yet. Cornwallis does it anyway. Cornwallis stops communicating with Sir Henry Clinton and goes directly to Lord George Germain, the Secretary of State for the American Colonies, the one sort of orchestrating the entire British effort against the, uh, the, the revolutionaries in London. And Germain tells him, yeah, I think you should go to Virginia. Go for it. Uh, why not? So the chain of command is all broken. Uh, the channels of communication uh, are being completely taken out of order. I mean, you're really seeing a breakdown of all of the things that a modern army should be excellent at. And it, the result is going to be nothing short of catastrophic for the British. Now, once we see Cornwallis in that area, once we see him in Virginia, Clinton realizes he's probably not going to listen to him. He's not going to leave. You might as well work with what you have. And he tells Charles Cornwallis to find a place on the Virginia Peninsula. Uh, if you don't know what the Virginia Peninsula looks like, the York River is to the north of it. Uh, the James River is to the south. It makes what looks like a sort of a large finger coming out of the side of the state. 
And he says, uh, build a place where we can shelter our naval vessels, our ships of the line. That's exactly what Cornwallis will do. Uh, he builds it in a place called Yorktown. Now, Yorktown sits on the northern side of the Virginia Peninsula uh, and is bordered on the north by the York River. It is not a terribly effective place or smart place to station yourself if you're Charles Cornwallis. Now, remember, the Americans have no navy, so he's really not afraid of that, but the French do. And the French Navy has been pretty much engaged with the British in the Caribbean for some time. But Cornwallis will put himself there. Now, of course, little does he know, he's sort of setting himself in his own trap. Because the armies of the American Continental Forces uh, and the Marquis de Lafayette's French forces will quickly surround the city of Yorktown starting in September of 1781 and slowly but surely tighten the noose. Little by little, they encroach and encroach and encroach. And they've got serious firepower, and they've got many guns and many men. They've got all of the things that, realistically, they didn't have for, for most of the war. But they have it now. The French Navy arrives. They defeat a British naval force on the way. They block off any possible escape for, escape for Charles Cornwallis out the York River. And before you know it, he's surrounded. Now, again, I just made the Battle of Yorktown a month-long siege very easy and very simple because I'd rather have you understand the total, uh, I think, uh, significance of the battle more than the individual troop movements themselves. I'm not doing that because I don't think they're important. I think they're incredibly important. I think there's a large amount of merit in studying them. That's something you could pursue on your own. But I want you to understand how the military circumstances change the war. Because depending who you talk to, more often than not, most people would tell you the victory at Yorktown is the end of the American Revolution. And I hate to burst their bubble, but it just isn't. Yet we have this enduring memory, this enduring idea, that's exactly what it is. Whenever he realizes, Cornwallis, that he's surrounded, and he has to surrender, he does so. And he asks Washington and the Americans, if he can surrender with the honors of war. That is, come out with colors flying, with flags uh, in formation. George Washington remembers that the American soldiers in Charleston requested that same surrender under Benjamin Lincoln in 1781, and the British wouldn't let them do it. And Washington, as a result, won't let Cornwallis do it either. Cornwallis will pen a letter to his uh, commanding officer, Sir Henry Clinton, uh, right before the capitulation, right before the surrender. Again, I hate to read things on here. I mean, it's, you know, boring, but I think we should hear this. Cornwallis writes, I have the mortification to inform your excellency that I have been forced to give up the posts of York and Gloucester and to surrender the troops under my command by capitulation. On the 19th instant, as prisoners of war to the combined forces of America. Charles Cornwallis. This was not something the British High Command saw coming. Things were going really well for them in 1781. Very few people in Britain saw this, by the way, as the end of the war. I mean, they didn't see this as the Americans have defeated us. Oh no, how terrible. But you have to understand the other side of this, the British side of this. And I don't mean the side of this in Parliament. I don't mean the side of this in British troop encampments. I mean the side of this at home in the streets of London. 
The American Revolution is brutally, brutally unpopular. And it's growing more unpopular every day. It was really kept alive, I think, by a very vocal majority of conservative British politicians against the wishes of most people in the average life, most average Britons at the time. At the end of 1781, the only real British force left in what we think of as the 13 colonies is going to be in New York. The British will pull out of of Charleston. No reason to be there. Money stops flowing to the British soldiers in the New World, as do operations and, and instructions. I mean, it really seems like back in England, everybody's given up on the war. Is it really worth it? Wasn't Yorktown enough? Again, the American Revolution will not end for another two years. I mean, officially, the peace treaty. Uh, but 1781 holds a special significance for that reason. You know, one of the things about Charles Cornwallis is he really never respected George Washington. And you can kind of see why from his vantage point. Cornwallis is a guy, let's face it, who was born into wealth and status. But he served his whole life in the military and he climbed the ladder. From his vantage point, Washington uh, did serve some time in the British Army during the Seven Years' War. And then he just became a civilian planter. And then suddenly, because seemingly of his age... He was given full command of an entire army, uh, commander-in-chief, so to speak. He said there was no honor in that. I mean, there was no uh, dues paid for that. I'm sure Washington would disagree. And as a result of the surrender, Cornwallis sent out his uh, sword with his second-in-command. He refused to hand over his sword to Washington himself. He believed it was beneath him. And to Washington's credit, he wouldn't accept it. But this was a moment that very few people understood as the end of the war. As time would play out, uh, it would seem like the war was becoming less and less popular and real true American independence was growing more and more. That same year, 1781, the Continental Congress drafted what they called the Articles of Confederation. That was, each individual colony would now consider itself as an individual state. They would join in a confederation, working together when it suited them and separating when it didn't. They never really viewed themselves as one country, more like 13 different nations, very much like the European Union viewed themselves. And this would be the governing system for most of the decade of the 1780s, even after independence. But remember, the war is not over yet. It's just in a different place. You see, even if the British do stop fighting after Yorktown, which is mostly true, There's still a lot of people on the continent who are deeply invested in this war. There's still a lot of people who never fought because they were against American American independence or for the British Empire. They fought for strategic alliances to get the best for their own people. Of course, I'm talking about the British-allied Native Americans. There's no end to this war for them. But it's a tough situation. They've dedicated themselves to helping the British as allies, and it seems that every chance they got, the British would never return the favor. There is always a suspicion, I think, amongst the native uh, warrior community, that the British were only using them to further their own cause. But the natives didn't want to think that way. They wanted to focus on fighting, finding victory, working out the best deals for themselves. The question was, would the British ever step up and help them for a uniquely native cause? You can imagine what it was. The answer was no. 
But the year 1782 is still a year of fighting in the American Revolution, but it doesn't fit into the mold we usually think. It's an Indian war, a war for the native peoples that's been going on for quite a long time. There was a sense of finality to Yorktown. There's no way around that. For most people, it was a time of celebration. Yes, the British were in New York, but the fighting was mostly over. Again, they don't know when the deal is going to be done. But there was a sense of finality. That finality never came, though, to the native peoples of North America. They were going to continue the fight. On the next episode, we look at the year 1782 and see exactly how they did it. Remember, our final episode of the season, the season wrap-up, is going to air on February 27th. So if you're listening live now, get your emails, questions, uh, and we can say school-appropriate critiques. How's that? In for the show. Our next episode, the year 1782, the American Revolution from Indian Country. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.